Hi, I'm Jess and I'm the oldest. Oi, I'm the oldest. I'm Shtee, I'm the dad and this is actually my podcast. And I'm Tommy, I'm the youngest. Welcome to the podcast. At the heart of hearts, we're all very creative. I've had a very interesting life. You've travelled all over the world. I remember being... Oh, interesting. This is not how I remember the story story. story. Pints are not a good measure for filling Jacobs as fuel. <laughs> hip hip hooray and welcome to another episode of the Pod Clarks and guess what, drum roll please. <laughs> I, that is a terrible <laughs> drum roll. We are on episode 20. Beam, beam, is beam, beam, it? Beam. I bet you never guessed that we were on episode 20 considering A, the title is 20 and B, we had 19 last month but still I know, I we're think very we excited. I think quite a big hype about 19 and we made a hype, yeah. a pre-hype about 20. What I realised is that um, when, I, when I was 20 years old I was sort of at university and so on and that's nearly where we are and because we do these every month it won't be long before the podcast is exactly the same age as I was when I'm telling my tales if that makes any sense. Yes. I thought you were going to say the same age as you are currently. Yeah. I was like, we might take a little while to get there. <laughs> well, it will come around, though. It will co- If we're going by each episode is a year for some reason, even though they're every month. But it's because you said they'd come of age at 18, and it's kind of stuck. Really. <laughs> <laughs> hey, oh, it's grown up, and now it's flying the nest. Well, it's very early in the morning, and it's very cold for all of us, so we're trying to bring our best energy, and I think so far, it's worked. So, Stephen... Do you have some exciting stories to keep the warmth going? Well, you might remember from last time that we were heading towards Thailand. So this, I think, I think this is probably one of two episodes where I'll talk a little bit about time spent in Thailand in the 1980s. Um, But before I do that, I want to talk about something that happened on the way to Thailand. Uh, I was going to represent an organisation to run a refugee project. And I was going from Royal Leamington Spa, as those who have been listening carefully for the last 19 episodes will know. Uh, And in Leamington Spa, uh, we had some friends who had gone out to work in Pakistan, which is sort of on the way to Thailand. The route to Thailand was on Pakistan Airlines, which of course means you have to stop over in Karachi. And I noticed on my scheduled air ticket that there were 23 hours in Karachi, which is a very long time Hmm. to stop over. And then I thought, oh, those people that we know who are working in Pakistan from Leamington Spa, I wonder if I could go and visit them during that 23 hours. I didn't know where they were or how far away they were from the airport or whether it was even possible. I'm already stressed by this journey. The scene is set for some dangerous... Well, it's, it was a ridiculous story, this one, because before... <laughs> I, it was coming up to Christmas and I knew these guys were quite isolated out there and um, they had some other mutual friends in Royal Leamington Spa and I said... There's a trust of possibility I might see them. So, of course, some people all gave me Christmas presents for them, uh, all wrapped up. And uh, so in my luggage, mm-hmm. I had got, I don't know, five or six Christmas presents, which might or might not be delivered to this couple in Pakistan, depending on whether I got to see them or not. And, of course, you get to that bit where you go into check-in and they say, uh, is this your luggage? Did you pack it yourself? Is there anything in it? You know, and, and basically you sort of have to lie in those circumstances. I mean, I'm not proud of this, and I'm sure I wouldn't do it now. (laughs) But, I mean, I knew they were absolutely certainly things like tea cosies, um, uh, bottles of a a candle. There was nothing explosive in there. Anyway, I got this on board, went got and jumped on the plane, arrived in Karachi. And if you're in a through ticket, the airline puts you up in a hotel. So I got checked into this actually very nice hotel. I thought, right, now the mission's on. Where are these people? How do I get to see them? 
So I rang the head office of the organisation they were working for and uh, spoke, sort of was passed from pillar to post and um, eventually got to a man who said to me, oh, he said, oh, they live a long way away from Karachi. Yes, he said, so I've never been there. I don't, I don't I've never been there and I don't recommend you go. <laughs> I said, well, well, where is it? Uh, I said, I've got 23 hours. Well, how far away is it, you know? And he said, oh, I don't exactly know. But he told me where the town was and, and I gave up with that and found out that this town, I mean, I'm, I'm guessing now because it's a long time ago, but was something like three or four hours um, drive away from Karachi, i.e. sort of doable. Mm. And, um, well, bear in mind, this is, it would have been so handy to send an SMS message or an email or something to these people and say, you know, are you there even? Can I come? <laughs> uh, mm. What are the chances of, of, of making it? Anyway, um, I, I, after the call, I sort of thought, well, perhaps it would be stupid. And then I thought, I'd be really sorry if I didn't even try. But when you're in transit, they take your passport from you. So you can't really sort of, um, you're not really in the country. You're just in the transit hotel. Mm. But I thought, well, what's the worst that can happen is the famous phrase that's driven my life. (laughs) And Mm. I found that that there was two stages to this journey, a major sort of coach to another town, which was a sort of, you know, air-conditioned coach, and then a a local bus from there. So I got on this, this, um, this coach... And was happy as Larry, sitting in the back reading a book or something. And then we came to a roadblock uh, with a sort of police checkpoint uh, down the road. And I thought, oh, my word, I wonder if they check papers here. And so, I mean, I don't know if you've seen that, that um, film Midnight Cowboy, where the chap is uh, mm-hmm. arrested for drug smuggling. Anyway, he, he's, he's in, on the airport bus and he realised they're checking everybody. He's got jugs all around his, his waist and he sort of slinks down in the seat um, so it doesn't look like he's, there's anybody in the seat on the bus, whereas it doesn't work for him. They come on the bus and they capture him and they put him in prison because he's got <laughs> drugs around his, his middle. <laughs> but that's exactly what I did. I, I sort of slunk no. down in the seat thinking, gulp. The worst that could happen could be actually quite bad, quite bad, because <laughs> I, I haven't got a passport. Um, I really can't show any evidence that I know anyone in Pakistan or that have a clue where really I'm going. <laughs> Anyway, they didn't come on the bus, they didn't check papers, and it was all a bit of a sort of drama for no reason. Um, got to the next place, a big bus station. Uh, somebody said, you need to take a motorbike to get the other local bus uh, from the other bus station. Off I went on this motorbike, clutching my Christmas presents, and um, <laughs> uh, arrived at this other little bus. And the local buses were literally that. They were sort of... They didn't have glass in the windows, um, and... Uh, I jumped on this, and by this time it was sort of like six o'clock at night, I think. And there was about a 40-minute journey to the next, to, to this place where they lived, in the Sindh province of, of Pakistan. So I, I sort of queued up this bus, and the bus just filled completely. And bear in mind, I was going off to Thailand in the jacket and tie with trousers, because I th- was going to do a job that I thought required me to look sort of vaguely competent. Mm. So on I got to this bus, which was so full that I actually had to stand on the step going up into the bus and hang on to a rail uh, sort of outside the bus. So I was sort of half in and half out on, and um, being the last person to board. And there was always the sort of mayhem of, of these brilliant local buses with baggages and a few animals and this sort of thing. And, I was, and off we set. And it was dark by now and was hanging on, the, on this bus and off we went. Um, and then we arrived at this town um, 
And I had no idea where they were or, or what they didn't, there was no, no address or anything for them. And nobody really spoke any English. Um, so I thought, hmm. Anyway, I got off the bus and it was, if you can picture it, it was dark. There's no street lights. Um, in, the, I can put, in the headlights of the bus, there was just swirling dust. Uh, and I thought, oh, I wonder if this was such a good idea after all. I didn't even know if they were there or not. Um, but I knew that they were worked with a church, a Christian church. And of course, Pakistan's a Muslim country. So I thought that that will be a distinctive thing. And I approached somebody in the market and, and there was nobody in the market, there was one person. And he'd got a torch, fortunately, and I, I shone his torch on the ground. And with, with my um, finger, I just drew a cross in the, in the sand because it was the only thing I could think of that would link me to somebody in that town. Anyway, I mean, he put two and two together, which was very easy to make four, because I was white, British, and this couple Mm. were probably the only couple in that town. Anyway, he said, oh, yes, and he pointed me to this chap, and they loaded me on the back of a a trailer with a donkey pulling it, and uh, off we went into the dark, not knowing whether I was being kidnapped or um, escorted or, this is, anyway, (laughs) VIP treatment, I didn't... Anyway... Long story short, or short story short, we arrived at the house of these people. And they, I mean, if an alien had dropped from the outer, outer sky, <laughs> yeah. they mm-hmm. would have been less surprised than to see me from Leamington Spa turning up with an awful of Christmas presents all wrapped up. And just no warning, no notice, just like, found, that's amazing. It is. It was, and it Were all, you scared? No, at any no point? I wasn't. I wasn't scared. I mean, I, I don't know why I wasn't scared. Um, and uh, I think. I think perhaps my time in Zambia um, had sort of sandpapered off fear, a bit of fear of that kind of sort of circumstances. <laughs> um, but anyway, uh, what was really good was they, these two had had a really bad day for reasons I didn't ever know or can't remember. And they were just wondering about the whole reason they were there and whether it was worth carrying on, blah de blah de blah And then it later transpired that this sort of angel Gabriel dropping in from from nowhere was it was a real sort of boost to their um to their sort of way of doing things and uh, so in the very next morning so I stayed overnight with them and the very next morning mm. bright and early they took me to the bus and I caught the bus back and caught and in fact it was it was comfortable I had a I think I had a couple of hours to spare but only a couple of hours and if you're mm. thinking about sort of checking in for flights and stuff and all that kind of thing I was thinking hmm and of course, at the end of the day, if I've missed the flight, there's another flight tomorrow. Sort there's of thing. another flight. So yeah. it's like yeah. all about balance of of benefit and cost. Anyway, it was it turned out to be one of the great triumphs of life because I slunk back into the hotel and I actually felt massively guilty because I mean I, I don't know why or towards whom, but I, <laughs> I felt as if I should have used the hotel room somehow because it was sort of provided for me. <laughs> and uh, and off I, off I went to the airport, checked in. And, and headed off to Thailand. It's so funny imagining you checking out and being like, I'm so sorry, I barely used the room. It's really clean. I, I, I can't say how sorry I am. But. Uh, there's very many ways my brain works that I can't really explain, and that's that's one of them, I think, really. But, mm, um, brilliant. So how did you find, like, the bus schedule? How did you find the bus schedule? I, there wasn't really a bus schedule. I mean, I just found that I need to get to this town I needed to get to this other town first and there was a mate that's a major bus route so I just went and queued up and there was a bus sort of going every half an hour I think actually it was quite a mm. 
But then, and then did you you'd just have the ask currency. when you were there? Yeah. I changed some money. Yeah, I changed some money at the airport. But um, the the local bus. I mean, I mean the whole all the way. I didn't know if it'd work or not. But I just thought I'll just turn around and go back if not. Um, and it reminded. I mean, it's a bit like your tale of going to watch Sam with his. Um, was it a cycle ride to Brighton um, and, oh, and wondering yeah. whether yeah. to get off the train and wondering whether to go and try and wait for him and all of that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. And, and in, the, in the end, it was a triumph because, you know, you sort of think, oh, I'd be, it'd be silly not to try kind of thing. <laughs> mm. so, yeah, yeah. Um... <laughs> I love that. I love comparing your adventure, that adventure <laughs> to me getting a train to Brighton. <laughs> yeah, I feel like, it's anyway, but yes. <laughs> It's the same sort of instinct. But um, anyway, that, that put me into Thailand uh, with a good feeling in my heart, shall I say. I felt as if it had been good. And lighter luggage. Oh, yes. Yes, I got rid of all the uh, gel ignite and TNT and everything. <laughs> um, I've got a question for you before I go on to Thailand, because the, some of my time in Thailand is around this idea. Is, um, how do you approach rules and laws uh, in life, um, I'm not sure you're both the same on this. Do you, do you think they're things? That, <laughs> do you think they're things to always be followed and uh, and adhered to, or can they be flexible? Are they there to be broken? Um, does it matter what sort? I am constantly battling my instinct to follow every single rule to the T, and never blend blend them. Never blend the rules. <laughs> um, <laughs> even like even at work, where there's like a rule that maybe I've come up with just to try and make something simpler or something rather than it being something that has to follow that I'll then still be really like oh but it must be followed and then I'll go hang on no I don't think it does I think it's okay to change this this time it's so weird it's totally I don't know what you did to me as a child but you made me follow the rules very well well it's <laughs> I, it's, it's puzzling really because I don't quite know where that comes from I think although I think mm. I think uh, Mutz has a, a a sort of allegiance to that and that's a good a good thing in many ways I struggle with well, keeping the rules. Well, I go to jail, hopefully. I struggle with keeping you rules. You struggle with keeping the rules. Mm, most of the time, depending on what the rule is, of course. Especially when rules are just made... Um, well, when the rules... You know, there's this phrase, the law is an ass, when, when the law doesn't actually sort of make any sense. Um, how, mm. how, how far do we doggedly follow a rule, even though it's patently stupid? I mean, I, we're making much too much of this question, but anyway, <laughs> I just thought it would be interesting. Mm. Um, I think it really depends, but I definitely, I I think I definitely do have quite a big chunk of like, oh, but it says that that's what should happen, so therefore that's what should happen, mm. which which is sometimes really annoying, you know, you don't, <laughs> yeah. like, you know, yeah. you don't want it, but but I but I also do resonate with that thing of it depends how much it makes sense. Yeah. I think mm. if can't really think of any examples mm. at the moment, but, and I think it obviously it depends whether like Tommy you were talking about a rule that is a sort of a helpful rule that you've made at work because of how it gets everyone to do a similar thing mm. as opposed to kind of a this is the society we live in and therefore the moral code we follow is yeah this. i think moral morals and rules are maybe subcategories of a I don't a bigger know. discussion. Have Come back discussion. to join us for podcast sixty, <laughs> yeah. and we talk about morals and rules. <laughs> <laughs> yes, because I, I feel morals always trump a rule, but I might be wrong on that. You know. Who knows? Um, yeah. I want, yeah. I want. Yeah, I wish I could think of some examples, but we'll come back to it anyway. Um, I probably yeah. won't get around to talking about this now, but anyway, the, the, I think it all does change a little bit about whether you 
are in charge and created the rules or whether you're a sort of underling who's supposed to follow them. And of course, when I arrived in Bangkok, I was now in charge. Uh, I was the director of the operation, um, which I suppose uh, was quite complex. It was a half a million dollar program at that time, which I guess is around three, four million dollars in today's money, something like that. So it wasn't insignificant. And I had a team of um, 10 to 12 people, mostly young British volunteers to look after. And so my job was sort of split between accounting for the money and running the programme, making sure all the administrative boxes were ticked in order that the funds would keep flowing from the United Nations who was funding it. Um, and making sure that the team, who were sort of isolated from their families, living away for the first time probably, um, felt cared for, appreciated, motivated, um, were kept healthy and safe along the way. And and those two kind of responsibilities often took you in different directions or quite often took you in different directions, especially in terms of time. Um, but the, the board, the, the programme was really interesting. I mean, it had... I was thinking about it this morning, thinking, said to, to Mutz, that is just a different world, different life, a different person even. Uh, or it feels like that. And she said, yeah, that's because it was. <laughs> All of those things. But so we had uh, about 250,000 refugees on the border with uh, Cambodia and Thailand. And the programme was focused there. And there were, I suppose, five or six different parts to it. There was supplying water to um, a certain proportion of those those people. And that involved a fleet of um, road tankers that had to be filled up and discharged into tanks in the camps. So they were buzzing to and fro all the time. Uh, and then all the buildings were made of bamboo. So each refugee was given some bamboo to build their own houses to a certain design. But the, the sort of the clinic buildings and the institutional buildings, the buildings that were shared, our, our team built all those to, to different designs. So we had a couple of engineers sort of supervising that. Um, and then, I mean, a, a camp like that is a terrific fire hazard. You know, if a, a spark catches mm. one of the houses, it just goes through. So we had a fire team with sort of lookout posts high up above the camp, checking any sort of smoke that was out of the usual. Um, and the same tankers that did the water were then sort of there as standby to, to act as fire trucks. Um, and then there were mother and child health clinics um, to make sure that children under five had all they needed to grow up healthily and that pregnant women um, were cared for. And then there was a training centre to help give something for the refugees to do uh, during the day. So that, that sort of worked with textiles and crafts and that sort of thing. Um, and actually one of the interesting things about the training centre was they made um, these very... Um, lovely, brightly coloured chromars, they're called. They're um, a sort of silk scarf that, that Cambodian people wear around their neck uh, and they use it for all... It's a sort of multi-purpose thing. Mum's um, mm. got one that's bright sort of green um, and pink and you might have seen it. Anyway, this um, training centre used to uh, weave those and make those and sell them and people could come in and get be involved in that. But you might have heard of the film called The Killing Fields, you might have even seen it, which um, covers a bit of the history of Cambodia. Very sort of powerful film that, that um, particularly um, it features, uh, I mean, it's a, it's a fiction around a sort of blending of true stories, 
but um, it features the camps that we used to work in in uh, in the film. And uh, in fact, mm. the Cromars that are in that um, in that film were made in the training centre in Carrydang that we used to run. And it, it gets a credit. Mm. A credit yeah. is, if you stay and watch the credits for long enough, right at the very sort of near the very end, it sits, gives a credit to. <laughs> To the organisation for that. Um, so was that after you were there, or was that while you were there? Or before, the film or? was uh, was afterwards, um, but it talks about mm. the time leading up to the period we were there, sort of thing. Um, if you see what I mean, mm. it, was, it was set in that era. So if I think of the MCH clinics, I think of a whole the mother and child health clinics. I think a whole raft of very sort of dedicated nursing people, many of whom became friends, um, and. Uh, I remember Ellie particular, one of them, uh, who told me when she arrived, I met her at the airport and she arrived um, to work in Thailand. And about sort of two or three months later on, I went down to the border to see her and she was saying how uh, leaving England, her biggest fear was that she wouldn't, would she be competent as a nurse? Would she be, would she be skilled enough to be a nurse in the context she was going to? Because it was all very much untested um, for these people coming up the first time. And now I'm here, she said, I find my biggest problem is how to get a bag of charcoal in the back of the van. Uh, so in other words, <laughs> so, often the thing, of the well, so, so often the things we fear in life um, don't materialise and we're struck by something that isn't, we haven't even thought about. Ergo, don't worry about mm. anything. <laughs> Ergo, break the rules. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent episode titles there. <laughs> Oh, go do it. But I mean, it's one, it is a good lesson that actually that we might be stopped from doing something because we're fearful about a particular aspect of it. But very often that that isn't that isn't right, and and Ellie would testify to that. Mm. And if I think about the mother and child health clinics, um, one particular incident was um, they used to go in by car every day from the base on the border, and one day the the the, the car was involved in a road accident. And it's um, the, the the roads are sort of built up on a um, with with um, quite um, a drop up to either side. So if you run off the road, you almost inevitably turn over, which this car did several times. And when I saw the the car uh, in the compound where it had been taken to, you would have thought it was hard for anyone to come out of that alive. It was it was seemed completely crushed to me the cab. Um, mm. And we had I mean by then I knew the result, so it wasn't wasn't so bad, but it was still quite thought provoking because. Um, there were four people in that car and uh, only one of them, Susie, had got a serious injury. And her, well, serious injury, her injury was that she'd broken her collarbone, which is quite a regular sort of mm. uh, thing, especially for rugby pairs, I think. Um, and I knew this, this was the case and she was in a hospital um, being treated locally. So I, I went to see her and by then she was sort of on the process to being discharged and um, was up and about and standing up. And, and of course, you know, I mean, I, I just thought... The thing to do here is is to hug Susie, you know, as a kind of a sort of mm. um, encouragement. Uh-oh. Now that was wrong on all sorts of levels, but the the main two were that she wasn't really a hugging sort of person anyway. Lovely, but not really a hugging sort of person. But also, it's like, kind of puts pressure on the collarbone if you hug some somebody's mm. broken their collarbone. Mm. So she absolutely yelped um, because mm. it was painful. Um, but anyway, she forgave me for that, and uh, later on we sort of had a bit of a laugh about it. But uh, again, you know, sort of, just think, Stephen, just think before you do things. 
Yeah, but it's it's sort of really I it's really frustrating when you go to do a thing and then you sort of realise just a bit too late that it wasn't quite the right thing to have done. Mm. <laughs> Such mm. so annoying. That happens. Um It happens. It'd be so much easier if we were all horrible people. <laughs> or we just, just carry always on did the right it. thing at every moment and never made any social faux pas. Yeah, well, that's true. If, yeah, OK, I'll, I'd rather that, actually, than for, a horrible, <laughs> or, than for us all to be horrible people. Mm. But I, I remember that, um, you know, that general kind of feeling of those tight days were being part of a great group of people. Um, and mostly they were, they were tremendously sort of supportive of everything I was trying to do, and I tried to be for them. And, in fact, there was this one particular team member called Ali who, who ran the training centre, and um, interestingly enough, uh, 40 years on, she's now in Uganda, uh, believe it or not, and still working mm-hmm. sort of to save the world, as it were, or to help the world. Um, mm-hmm. And she, she was an absolutely inimitable character, great, the sort of person you want to be on a long journey with, you know, have at parties, you need one or two people like that in any kind of pressurised. She was absolutely great. But she was not one particularly to bother about rules I suppose would be a, <laughs> a, a fair comment and Ali if you're listening I mean that in the nicest possible way um, <laughs> but anyway one of the rules that we had was no pets um, so the teams used to live in a in a, a house uh, had two or three houses I think with maybe three or four people per house and uh, they'd live together and uh, there was a cook and uh, just at the end of the day they'd come and socialise and so on um, but we weren't allowed pets and I was the sort of enforcer of this law because um, there was quite a lot of rabies around in Thailand and rabies is a very dangerous disease and um, dogs and cats can easily get rabies so that was the reason behind the rule but of course I mean Ali was very much an animal lover and uh, I think you know if a, a stray kitten came her way looking bereft and forlorn then uh, um, she how could you say no how could you say no the rules, Thomas, the rules. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, she, she said yes to this little straight, forlorn kitten that came her way. And uh, unbeknown to me, it got sort of incorporated into the house uh, until I got a call saying um, that, that Ali had been bitten by this cat. Um, and uh, shortly afterwards, this cat had basically gone mad. It had raced around the room at top speed, drooling saliva, um, gone absolutely rigid, stiff, and died. Now, is that what? all of that... Is that a sign of rabies? Is that rabies? Well, a lot of those things are a sign of rabies. I mean, be, the, behaving madly and dribbling saliva is, mm. are definitely mm. signs. Now, Being dead isn't. <laughs> <laughs> can be. Anyway, so, uh, now I can't quite remember. I mean, the... The, the protocol is to keep the animal and you have to send the head off to be analysed um, to see if it had rabies. Oh, but, Lord. but none of us really really felt kind of like doing that. Um, but I was, I was faced with the difficulty of, of whether to be sympathetic to the cat bite or furious with breaking the rules, you know, and it was kind of like an interesting tightrope to tread. I mean, I, I, mm. I definitely wasn't furious about breaking the rules, but um, it was a good example of why the rules are there in a way. And I mean, as it turned yeah. out... Um, the the cat didn't have rabies, and Ali Ali's um, uh, ha- bit bite on the hand uh, healed up, and and all was well. But I mean, it was just you couldn't have made that story up, really. It's like mm-hmm. just be bitten just before that happened. I mean, oh, I don't know. Yeah. 
Mad. It's funny, it's reminding me of when Lucy was coming home from work before and there was a cat hanging out outside our door looking really, really lost. And we ended up looking, well, we left it outside overnight because we thought it must be somebody's and surely it's going to work out what's going on. But it was sleeping in our garden when we woke up in the morning. So we looked after it for the day. And at that point, although the rule was we weren't allowed cats, we were very much... Let's bring the cat inside and let's really, really hope that it doesn't have an owner because <laughs> then, then we have to look after it. Um, and it's like justification for breaking the rules. Um, turned out it did have an owner. Was that, was that right? Mm. Turned out it did have an owner and it was lost. So we, everything we did was right, mm. which was good. Um, Apart from bringing it through the door. Did you find, did you find the owner? Yeah, we, we, we brought it inside and then called a vet and made an appointment for the afternoon and then they checked the, the chip in it and then they called the owner and were like, oh, your cat's gone walkabouts. Turns out they're on holiday and they're, they had people who were feeding it but only like once every day or something, so they hadn't noticed that it had gone walkabouts. Um, it wasn't that far away. We could walk there, but it was definitely further than a normal cat would um, mm. roam, I think, in a city. Um, That's a very good deed to have done. Oh, it was so fun. You had a cat for a day. <laughs> <laughs> She was right at home. It was so it was so nice. Anyway, so the other interesting thing about the mother and child health clinics was that um, at the end of the day, when uh, sort of it came to the end of the working day, the team would leave to go back to their houses in the nearby town. And in a way, the um, I, I mean, I used to say an atmosphere of fear sort of descended on the camps. Uh, it's a little bit dramatic, I think, really, but but the. An international presence in a situation like that definitely has a sort of moderating effect on some of the political dynamics that are going on and the things that are happening between different groups and so on. Um, and of course, a refugee camp is a target for um, people around who might see all the resources that flow into it. Um, but anyway, because of the military situation and, and that, um, once the clo- camps were closed, they were closed really. Except that, if there was a medical emergency, exceptionally... I mean, a lot of things could be treated in the camps. There were sort of fairly good mini-hospitals, even, even albeit bamboo ones. Um, but there used to be quite often a problem with children who'd got a sudden... I mean, like an appendicitis or something. They couldn't really deal with that. Or a, a woman who went into labour um, early or a, with a breech delivery or something that was just out of the usual. If that happened sort of between the hours of the working hours, then exceptionally uh, we could apply for a permit to take that person to the the local Thai hospital to be dealt with. And there was a a commander um, in the Thai military whose job it was was to allow or or disallow these permits. Um, And one interesting thing is that he, he was minded not to allow a permit unless he was really convinced it was it was a sort of life or death situation. And sometimes it was hard to argue that um, because it wasn't really. But the very best, a better care for somebody would be in the local Thai hospital, mm-hmm. given the situation. And he was particularly, uh, it was difficult if you had a child because that sort of polarises the feelings, um, certainly for our team, who might you know, hear, have a message by radio, because this is all by radio control, in their house saying that somebody was, was some child was, was very sick. And so they would get on to the commander and sometimes he would say no. Um, and sometimes he would say yes. But what we discovered was, and this is the point of my story, 
that he, uh, during my time there, his wife had a baby and he became a father. And guess what? Instantaneously, Mm. he became much more likely to approve a request for a child to be Uh evacuated to the hospital at at night, which which in a way, you know, he had rules to enforce and he had a way of interpreting them, but uh, uh, depended... It, it's all subjective in the end. But anyway, that was a great thing. It was only a human. That was a great thing. So why did you need a permit? Was that if you turned up at the hospital without a permit, they wouldn't do anything? Just or to move. Or was it just, that you couldn't... No, leave? it was just to move in, in the area. You weren't, nobody could move without a military um, approval because it was, a, it was sort of a, on the edge of a war zone, really. Um, and there were, there were occasional okay. sort of mortar attacks. I mean, not not anything to to sort of be a serious danger. But, you know, the, there were security things that you needed to keep to. Um, and he always reported... So he was it. trying to keep you safe by not giving you a permit? That is... Because a, he was saying the risk is too high. That, for the... that, that would be true. I don't think I even understood that at all at the time, uh, even, you know, being on site. Um, it mm. just seemed like a, an official who was being difficult. Uh, <laughs> but that's because I was fighting the corner of of a team of passionately motivated nurses, you know, so... But he had the bigger picture, there's no doubt about it. Um, it's exactly the same, yet the opposite, as the cat story you just told, but you're in the other position. I know, I know. Well, this yeah. is... <laughs> hence the question at the beginning of the podcast, you know, um, are rules to be uh, to be followed or bent? Well, both in different circumstances, probably. I know, it's just, it's not a very good rule to live by that rules can be bent depending on the circumstances. (laughs) (laughs) Even though I do think that's the case because, you know, you just, like how many stories are there of people who have just gone with their gut instinct that, that what is happening is more important than, you know, the set of rules surrounding it and you know that turns out to be kind of the truth well here's a very current one from france i mean this is jumping 40 years but uh you know i'm trying to become a school bus driver here in france i think you know that um i do well guess what was in the news last week was a school bus driver was fired um because he was dropping children off at their driveways of their house rather instead of the well instead of sorry instead of the um bus shelter that's been built for school children to be dropped off at and um, his rationale was that it was dark, raining, there's no pavements on the roads and there were no parents at the bus, bus shelter when he got there. So, I mean... He was fired for it. Shocking, isn't it? Gosh, That's that bananas. is... That's bananas. So... That yeah. also sounds like something you definitely would do. Well, <laughs> absolutely. And, and uh, interestingly enough, um, when, when I, if I do my training in January for this school bus training, it's a question that I'd very much be wanting to discuss... I talked to it about with my neighbour here on the road the other day and he was, oh, well, of course he should have been fired. You can't stop a bus anywhere in a road. I mean, it's dangerous. You know, there is an, a, a specified place that's safe for a bus to stop and that's where you should stop. And I said, well, what about if there's nobody there? Are you going to drop a seven-year-old in the rain? He said, it's, it's it probably safer than stopping in the middle of the road outside the child's house. Anyway, you know, interesting debate. Wow, mm. yeah, yeah, yeah. Also, yeah, I very... wonder if there's, if there's, like, safeguarding things there of not knowing where all the kids live. Maybe it's like you're not as a school employee 
or something. I don't know. I, we don't know the whole story of any of these things in the news. But if I... I'm sure the bosses have got good reasons for all the rules. <laughs> I'll follow them. Don't worry. What I definitely is true out here is that the school bus driver would know completely where every school, where every child lived, and the parents and all that sort of thing. And, and yeah. of course, sometimes you're making a judgment about the parents' capability of caring for that child anyway. Um, uh, which, whether that's right or not, I don't know. But uh, you know, anyway, you're right. I would stop a bus at somebody's house if there was a cold, dark, wet night and nobody for the child when I got to the bus stop. Um, Tommy, what would you do if you were a bus driver? Stop at the bus stop. It's not a fair umbrella. question because because we're painting it like if you leave a child at a cold, wet, rainy bus stop where there's no parents, you're a monster. I mean, it's all extremes, isn't it? We're making out of but uh, that. And, and I guess there's a continuum of seriousness. Oh, a continuum of seriousness. Well, there we go. There's another title in the bag. Oh, too many good ones. <laughs> but what is the continuum of seriousness? Uh, well, the issue uh, is, is it the, the fate of a child or is it whether an apple is going to go to waste? You know, I mean, what's the, what's the kind of outcome of if you break the rule or don't mm. break the rule? Yes. Yeah. And Apple going to waste being early on in the continuing series. <laughs> <laughs> but that is like the thing of um, of certain shops, you know, kind of supermarkets who cannot, like their rule is we do not give away food that we can't sell because obviously they could be sued by someone that takes that food that gets food poisoning and that would have a massive implication. Whereas uh, to me, I just feel like, you're literally throwing away food that somebody could eat and just put a little like, disclaimer how is that possible? Yeah. Come on. Easy peasy. But but the fact is that like they're too there's too much at stake if 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 the one bad version was to happen that means that it that food goes to waste and it's absolutely insane. Yes, well I think that is a very good point at which to say uh uh today has been a great podcast, the twentieth one. It's a it's a it's a credit to twenty year olds everywhere. Um, <laughs> and, doing exactly what twenty year olds do. <laughs> yeah. And I'll come back with more Thailand stories uh, for episode twenty one, if that's all right with you. Definitely. I it was some high drama at the beginning there. I, I really enjoyed yeah. the picturing your sort of journey out of Karachi and yeah. It's, you know, I'm inspired and impressed by you always. But as, as I've said before, it's just such much, so much fun reliving it because these memories haven't surfaced for many a year. Many a long year. <laughs> well, Hooray. more to come in episode 21. It's goodbye from me. It's goodbye from me. Until next time, it's definitely goodbye from me. Bye! Bye.